now join the Untitled Beatles podcast already in progress. Tony and TJ are discussing the song Your Blues, despite having forgotten to mention the title of the track. Untitled Beatles podcast. All right, man. So the Beatles were never a blues band. They never claimed to be. They never really even tried to be. You know, they did 12-bar original. uh, (laughs) Never really saw the light of day till much later. But to me, this is the best the Beatles ever got at their version of the blues. I think it's great. I love this. I'll take this song over many other, especially in the 80s, blues songs. You know, that Budweiser beer commercial blues or whatever, you know. (laughs) I'll take this over the Blues Brothers a thousand times. You, you've never heard their version of Soul Man. Aykroyd can really nail the harmonica <laughs> solo. <laughs> Hey, that Blues Brothers band, that's Duck Dunn. I mean, that's a yeah, great... Those are good guys, yeah. Great players in that band. Yeah. What about the vocals? Yeah. <laughs> Bend over, let me see you shake your tail feather. Yeah. There was a time where everyone in Chicago had to own that soundtrack with the blue cover and they're on the hood. Yeah. You know what yeah. I'm talking about? That and Animal House, but for some reason, everybody mandatorily owned those. Um, yeah, okay. Here's the thing. I totally agree with you. And this song, I went and listened to the other versions of this that I know. And that's the Sloppy Lie Piece in Toronto one oh, in 69. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm lonely. And then, of course, the Rock and Roll Circus. Yeah. With the Stones and with that kind of super group there. My mother was of the sky. My father was of the earth. But I am of the universe. And you know what it's worth. Yeah. Mitch Mitchell, Keith Richards, and Clapton, right? Yeah. Pretty sure Clapton. Clapton's also with Klaus Vormann on the... Um, the, the uh, Toronto. Yeah. This version with the Beatles is by far the best version because they're so locked in. It brings out the nuance and the best part in the song is the nuance. It's not just the pounding blues of it. It's you can hear the stuff going on in the background. Like they're clearly just on the same page, tight as hell playing together. This is one of the best examples of the Beatles as a unit in their later days. The Eagle picks my I completely agree. Yeah. Love it. Recorded in room 2A. It's a small storage room. Uh, and uh, measures eight feet by 15 and a half feet. I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, Playboy for the stereo articles, right? <laughs> see that guy yeah. for a little bit. And the Playboy advisor. Though you once were the best bunny at the Playboy Club, you're getting to be a rabbit with me. No, but yeah, so I'm, yeah, I picture late night, low lighting, tight room, they're sweating, and they're playing like this, they're playing like a band with nothing to lose and anything to prove. I love Paul's bass sound on this. I guess it's a Fender jazz bass. It's like a growling panther. I, like his bass sounds like a fucking animal on this record. Yeah. I love it. It drives a song that's already thick. Yeah. Paul's bass. Yeah. And obviously Ringo's drums are great. I love hearing the counting. This is a song that could tap into some kind of like animalistic thing in me this is the song i think i when I, I told this already but like i was playing with a tennis racket in my room when i was like a, in eighth grade and i'm jumping off my bed and i'm slamming the tennis racket and i slammed it into the ceiling and i made a hole in my ceiling playing fucking your blues on a tennis racket 
John said it's a parody of the blues. That's why he called it Your Blues, Y-E-R. This is in the age of cream. Back when Fleetwood Mac was this blues band. Bands like the Groundhogs were just starting, like these like heavy British blues bands. That was like guitar god stuff. Early Zeppelin. Early Zeppelin. Zeppelin's coming up. I can't quit you, baby. Woman, I think I'm gonna push you down. Exactly. The New Yardbirds, Led Zeppelin, right? Yeah. So I think to protect himself and the fact that the Beatles never claimed to be a blues band, like like Stones and the Animals and Yardbirds, like those bands were all like, we're doing the blues. Beatles never really said that. Uh, that said, I still call bullshit. I think this is I think this is genuine blues. John's lyrics are great. They're not only real, but they have his poetry in it. He's talking about Dylan. He's you know he's, the first time the word suicide is mentioned in a Beatles song, and only time I believe. Yeah, that's technically correct. I'm not going to buzz that. Though I do want to point out that John and Paul did mention suicide in their song. That means a lot. Written in 1965 and given to P.J. Proby, though they did end up releasing their own recording on Anthology 2. And then, man, I, I mean, I just I've always loved this song. And then that yeah. weird, just the weird drum edit into the cool down after yeah. the, the solo. Coming in on, on a fill. It comes, the edit comes in on a fill, right? Yeah. I think the edit is from the beginning of the cool down part. They just like slap it in and it's out of nowhere, but it sounds, I can't hear that song any other way. Like when you hear the outtake or whatever, the full version that's on the 2018 remix and the, the, the solos go on longer, I'm like, no, <laughs> it needs to go back to the first part the way it does. There's one of those revolution number one with a bomb, 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 ba da 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 Yes, that funny edit in there. I've always loved that too. Yeah, a stutter edit. Yeah, this, uh, I mean, it's it's such a great song with such great playing in there. And yeah, this is an album that has Eric Clapton on it. So it's it's part satirical and part homage. And yeah. that's the beauty of the White Album is what are they playing straight? And what are they yeah. satirizing? And what's to be taken at face value? Yeah. And it's in so many ways the most honest it's obviously not unplugged, but if there were a Beatles unplugged album, the White Album is the closest thing I think to that. Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe let it be, but like, there's something about the feel of the White Album where you never quite know what to believe. It's direct, <laughs> but also very, very layered. Yeah, man, it kind of gets into those uh, the trust issues I was mentioning at the top of the this whole yeah. thing of like, what's going on here? Uh, what do you mean the Walrus is Paul? What is this sound collage? That scares me. I, I don't. I, are you guys making music? Is this a parody of the blues, or is is this the blues? Yeah. I've always associated the next song, Mother Nature's Son. To me, this was Paul's Dear Prudence. Kind of where it sits on the record, yeah. you know, it's not the second song, but it comes after like two big rockers like back in the USSR does for Dear Prudence. Yeah, it's got that same sound. It's an acoustic, forward, folky kind of a thing inspired. Well, John thought it was inspired by a Maharishi lecture that was about nature and prompted him to write Child of Nature. I'm just a child of nature. I don't need much to 
Demoed at Esher, but not, you know, then it became Jealous Guy. On the road to Rishikesh. On the road to Rishikesh. I'm so, so glad he changed those lyrics. <laughs> but Paul says it was written at his dad's house in Liverpool. I mean, both can be true, but it was inspired by Nat King Cole's song, Nature Boy. There was a boy, a very strange enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far over land and sea. Oh, that from that Ric Flair movie. <laughs> if you know any history about Ric Flair, you know that the difference between me and just about everybody else is I was born with a golden spoon in my mouth. Nobody likes that. Okay, Tony. This is the perfect Paul song. It's a perfect Sunny song. It's a perfect song about his time in India. Who did the orchestration for this? Do you know who did the orchestration? I thought it was uh, George Martin. It is George Martin. Okay. Now, imagine if George Martin had done She's Leaving Home. <laughs> the tact and tastefulness that George Martin brought to everything, with the exception <laughs> of Good Night, which John instructed him to score that way, but this is what I'm saying. Like, George Martin's restrained and tasteful. She's leaving home was this morass of treacly. Like, if only George Martin had been allowed to score She's Leaving Home, it, Sergeant Pepper would have gone from being like a, a universally liked album, I think, to a culturally loved album. <laughs> That's wild, man. That's wild. I, I would love to have heard that. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we'll never know what that sounds like. That's one we got to The 60th box set of Sgt. Pepper will have. <laughs> AI will do the it. The ghost of George Martin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, as a child, Paul liked to ride his bike through the woods, admiring the rhododendron bushes. And if you play D&D, you can pick a dodecahedron. <laughs> pick a what Fuck now? Fuck me. And if you play D&D, TJ, you can pick dodecahedron berries from a rhododendron bush, and the dungeon master will allow you to roll the berries as dice. <laughs> Silent dice. <laughs> oh! <laughs> hey, yo! <laughs> I gotta mime this thing to use. I'm rubbing my dick with my hand, but I'm miming. <laughs> oh! Look what little boy Blue's doing with his mouth. Yeah. Oh! The thing is, like, he doesn't even mime. He, he like, actually pulls his... And I'm going to cut that one off before we lose our podcast license. Well, let's go! Uh, hey, check this out, man. Pot Lover's Corner. <laughs> so, my field of grass in Paul's lyric book, he says that that line was a definite nod to marijuana. Yeah, sure it was. My field of grass. I I just I I just took him literally for it. I ne I never read into that as a drug line. That's funny. Thank you for visiting Pot Lovers Corner. This might be the fifth. And final song that Paul is the main drummer on. I got USSR, Prudence, Wild Honey Pie, Don't Pass Me By, and this one. That's him on drums here. Yes. I think this is his last time as a uh, Stixman. <laughs> Hello, Stixman. It's really just the bass drum, though, he's playing, right? Like, he's not really on. It's a drum. Yeah, it's a drum. <laughs> These days, what's a drum no more? <laughs> The drums were, they were placed in the basement and the microphone was two stories up the stairwell. So that's why you get a real, um, yeah, real reverberated sound. And this was recorded two months before Simon and Garfunkel did The Boxer, which used a very similar thing. Like, I think they put Hal Blaine, they flew, first of all, they flew Hal Blaine all the way out to New York City, uh, LA New York City. New York City. Stranger. I hope you can beat a full house. And he just whacks a snare drum, you know, on the beat. He's Hal Blaine. Lie tonight. Bam. That was, re yeah, recorded in an elevator shaft. 
to give it that uh, that big booming sound. And he scared a security guard in the, while they were recording it, <laughs> yeah. who stumbled upon it, like in the middle of like he was just like walking around, and then he was like whack, you know. <laughs> And crazy Hal Blaine's down there. What's going on down there? I'm just talking about elevator shaft. <laughs> right on. Shut your mouth. <laughs> uh, he also, also, he tapped a book as percussion, Paul did. And the book was The Song of the Hiawatha by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, an epic 1855 poem in trochaic tetrameter. I think you can really hear that when you tap the, when, the way he's tapping. On. Yeah, it's in Decagon <laughs> Records. Dodecahedron Records over there by the Rhododendron bush, TJ. <laughs> oh! So this is before the album starts getting unwieldy. Like, one of the great things about this song is, and the songs that follow is I still feel like we're in, wow, there's no fat on here. This is really interesting what's going on musically. It's what makes side three so great. I agree. Yes. Yeah. Going right into everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey. The monkey being Yoko. Sometimes she was referred to as a monkey and worse terms in the press. Man, come on is such a joy, TJ. That's what I say. Come on, come on. This is such a great vibe song. It's got such a great feel. The shifting tempos in this thing and the ti- there's time signature changes. I mean, I love this tune. And my one of my first thoughts on this was, oh, yeah, file this under rock, motherfucker. <laughs> and guess what? It's not on. It's, it's not on file under rock, is it? How is that possible? I don't this know. This might be one of the best rock songs. You know, it's got... Paul's doing the original SNL bit with the cowbell. Yeah. You know, before it was a bit. The handbell, cowbell thing. That plays such an important role in this song. You can laugh. I mean, it plays as pivotal a role as it does on Don't Fear the Reaper. Like, you can't hear that song without it. It just propels the song forward. Check out the 2018 remix of this, too. I really feel like this is, this just shines in there. But however you listen, yeah, it's like one of the three best songs in the White Album. I elevate this up on my list wherever I had it. TJ actually ranked at number 99, his ninth favorite song from the White Album. Tony ranked at number 27, his seventh favorite from the album. You can find their complete rankings of the Beatles catalog in episode 83. I just want to hear the song over and over again. Yeah, man. It's it's an exciting song. It's one of the most exciting Beatles songs. I've loved this since I was 13. To me, it still retains that same energy as when I first heard it on cassette that first time. Actually, the first time I ever heard this song was just the beginning of it because Schaefer on the Letterman show used to play this song like whenever they had like the monkey cam uh anything that had like a monkey involved uh cool. Z- Zippy the monkey or they gave away when they did a home shopping segment they gave away that big ceramic monkey we have to go I'm sorry All right, thank you thank pleasure you meeting you thank you for nice bringing the uh, kids too. in we'll uh, right. we'll be right back He would play that, yeah. Sid McGinnis would go into the, the guitar line. We'll leave with the bass. Anton Fig at that time on the drums. Yeah, man, I've always loved this song. That's Paul on a Rickenbacker, so that's that bass. Rickenbacker, he was playing that a lot on this record. Yeah, I, I've, I've always loved this song. Ringo's drums are amazing. It's another one where the bass is like a lead instrument in this. Yep. Yeah, I love those six beats, that little break they do before the the outro. Yeah. I've always loved that, yeah. And on that Peter Sellers tape, there's an even more like chaotic mix of the song 
where John's, uh, it's a rough mix and John's vocals are double tracked, but on this they're half single tracked and half double tracked. And the, the screaming stuff at the end is even more like visceral. And cool. It's cool, man. It's cool. Yeah, yeah. If there's any more milk to be squeezed out of that, it would be cool to hear like a nice, uh, very clear version of the Peter Sellers tape. Those mixes are cool. Does this one feel to you like it's still a deep cut? There's so few Beatles songs that are deep cuts, and I feel like this is one yeah. that the casual Beatle fan probably should hear. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if it were up to me, I would I would have put this on the Blue Album, you know? I know that doesn't quite make sense, but to me, I don't know. It's such a killer song. I don't know. Well, future episode, same lengths, we do the Fans Red and the Fans Blue album. Yeah. I want to say someone did a Green album or something like that. That was, I forget what that deal was. But it could be like, what's the greatest hit? What's the what's the greatest hits record after Red and Blue? You know, I would put on, I guess it'd be a lot of White Album. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i put helter skelter on that i'd put sexy sadie everybody's got something to hide my monkey yeah i'd do it all i do all covers i just basically <laughs> have rock and roll music on the second album it's be roll over beethoven to open devil in her heart <laughs> chains chains everyone's everyone's second favorite Beatles song chains <laughs> <laughs> i like to hear it twice two chains with a z <laughs> topical tiktok people right here Inside of the Maybach, look like it came out of IKEA. Run shit like diarrhea. Big yacht, no pasta. I, I cap, I, I'm high cap, I, I'm so high. I, me and God happy. This my blessing. This my passion. School of hard knocks. I took night classes. I'm not on tip tap. Uh, yeah, so. Again, I bought this on cassette when I first bought it, and the next song would be Helter Skelter on cassette. That, to me, is how this album should go. I think everybody's got something to hide, except me and my monkey into Helter Skelter is gold. It makes a lot more sense than going into Sadie. That's my only sequencing gripe on this. That's my only sequencing gripe. Well, Tony, you are right, because on the 8-track, it also goes directly from me and my monkey into Helter Skelter. I mean, that's that's to me, that's the way it sounds. That's how this record sounds. It's a way forward. But anyway, we'll get to Helter Skelter when we do. So it's Sexy Sadie, famously about the Maharishi. I guess it was, they're saying now maybe it's Magic Alex. That was the one that uh, put the little birdie in their ear that Maharishi was fooling around, making advances towards women. And I mean, to their credit, they John thought that was bullshit. And that's... It also gave him an excuse to get the hell out of there, you know. I think there was a lot of that, and they've all insisted ever since that that was not the case, that it would, that yeah. was misinterpreted. Yeah, it was misinterpreted. John confronted Maharishi about it and said they were leaving, and Maharishi was like, what? What do you mean? And he said something along the lines of, if you're so cosmic, you'll know why, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know. <laughs> Which I get it. I, I've been there with regards to spirituality and like ghosts and stuff and being like, OK, you know, let's be real here. What's going on? Um, well, fine. Let's be real. Tell me what's going on. <laughs> I don't know. Here's the thing. Nobody knows. OK, so I don't know. But you don't cue, know either. Cue track from McCartney, too. <laughs> Yeah, so originally the song's called Maharishi, right? But it was George who persuaded him to kind of sand off the edges on that. I think George thought it was just too on the nose or too stupid. And also George still was like, hey, this is my scene, man. You're just shitting right. on my scene because of one thing that Magic Alex may or may not have said. You right. know? And he's an idiot. <laughs> and he, yeah, yeah, but he makes a toilet with a radio in it, you know, and a, right. a, a, whatever that thing was in the get back that... The guitar made out of water balloons. <laughs> that was also like a hat and a spaceship. Or what? <laughs> like, 
Magic Alex was the original Gallagher. <laughs> yeah, he was. It's not a slicer. It's not a dicer. It's not a chopper and a hopper. What in the hell could it possibly be? Um, I love musically. I love this song. They say musically it's similar to "I've Been Good to You" by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Look what you've done! You made a fool out of someone. Sexy city, what have you done? This is a very spiteful song, right? But in spite of that, it's such a pretty tune. I love the circular pattern on the way out. I could get lost on the end of this song. I wish this song went on and on and on. And in fact, on the Peter Sellers tape, you do. You get more. There's a whole section they cut out that uh, could have made it on there. I get why they cut it. Paul's piano. Is that Paul? Yeah. I love that. I love it. It is complicated and delightful. I don't know if John and he wrote the line together and Paul played it, but it's arguably some of the best piano playing on any Beatle record. It's soulful. Yeah, there's a soul to it. And there's, yeah. Yeah, he's he's exploring to me, places that haven't been tread before, like you would on rock and roll music or something like that. You know what yeah. I mean? Like you can do imitations of Jerry Lee Lewis and this, and that's also great on its own. I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying like, yeah, he's doing original things. I think Paul's coming into his own as a piano player around here on this record. Yeah, no doubt. Between like Martha, my dear, the, the bit he does on while my guitar gently weeps, honey pie. I've always loved this song. And then in the Spicer book, they show there's that picture of Mad Magazine did a like an Alfred E. Newman as the Maharishi cover. Oh, yeah. That's really fun. It was cool, man. September 1968 edition of Mad Magazine. Check it out. 35 cents. Cheap. You know, you, you talk about the nightmare element of this record as we get into the next transition of this, Tony. One thing in the fade out, especially listening to this with headphones, which was so fun to do. Paul starts to do a boogie, a boogie woogie on the piano in the wrong key during the fade out. Paul's ha! just fucking around. I never noticed that. And then there's a, what about two, three beats? When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. Where I stop? I've been giving Helter Skelter the short shrift for a while, and I'm blaming, I am, I love the song, I'm blaming Paul Live doing it, because his otherwise great band, this sucks live. <laughs> Their Helter Skelter is a waste. It's just loud and screaming, and we get that and live and let die. And when they do, I got a feeling it's a Helter Skelter is pointless live. The recorded version in 68 with Paul's voice and Paul's energy and that band's playing. This song's great. File this under rock. Yes, Helter Skelter. <laughs> Stereo because you get the um the, you get the fade back. Yeah. And and the Ringo. But yeah, I love this tune. I've always loved this song. Yeah. Side three kicks ass and it's yes. <laughs> and this and like I want you she so heavy kick the most Beatles ass, but uh it's the most metal of all Beatles songs. I think it's one of the scariest Beatles songs that's a song, you know. That scream he does, that one at the end, you know, like towards the end where he, he channels like it's like little Richard in hell. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Oh, 
that's the moment like uh, like for better or for worse like paul just invented you know sunset strip hair metal right there with that scream yeah well and that's that's why pipes of peace made so much sense because that was that kind of hair metal music Again, this is another one that Chris Thomas produced. Yeah. John on bass. It's either a Fender Jazz bass or the Fender 6, or as you would say, TJ, the Fender VI. It's a Fender VI. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bass. Have you ever heard the isolated bass track on this? I haven't. It's. I love it. It sounds so sloppy and like wrong in places, but it's also right because that's what rock and roll is because rock and roll is... It's supposed to be this way. It's supposed to sound all messed up and fucked up and overmodulated and yeah, man, I just love it. I love it. That's John on saxophone and Mal Evans on trumpet. On trumpet, it's great. <laughs> I knew I always heard horns at the end of this song, yeah. and I, I don't remember ever hearing them credited until 2018 in the book. You finally get the credit on it. It's a better rock song than Revolution. Oh, yeah. By far. By far. Yeah. I've always loved this song. I don't, I don't know how much to fawn over it. We have talked about it in the past. Uh, according to the lyrics book, the lyrics were inspired by the Mock Turtles song. Some of the lyrics were inspired by the Mock Turtles song in Alice in Wonderland. Will you, won't you, will you, won't you, will you join the dance? See how eagerly the lobsters and the turtles all advance. They are waiting on the shingle. Will you come and join the dance? Dance. Will you, won't you, will you, won't you join the dance? Dance. Will you, won't you, will you, won't you join the dance? Dance. I learned that one. Thank you, Paul. Paul Lyrics book. Oh, okay. I thought it was inspired by the turtles doing Eleanor G. I think you're swell. <laughs> Etc. <laughs> I love that song. It's one of my favorite. It's a good song. Movies. It's a great tune. It's a good song. This is one while we're talking about different masterings where the original stereo is just fine with me and Tony. I don't know if I've mentioned this up top, but the 87 CD I compared to the 09 remaster. I didn't do like a level check. I just did the ear check. There's very little difference between the 09 CD and the 1987. The 87 White Album still sounds really, really good. How bad, man. Yeah. And Helter Skelter in that iteration, which is the way I really learned it and the way I got into it. Yeah, it's it's just a great rock tune that Paul never needs to do live again. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I did see him do it with Ringo, and that was one of the best moments uh, of my music viewing life. Ringo on drums for Helter's? Sure. Okay, that's great. And as great as Abe is, though, like... Because it goes on like six. Paul's not great with editing. <laughs> Live, no. Right. And on record as well. He's he's definitely in the camp of one more time round. <laughs> now the people in the middle. Oh, it's 11.50. <laughs> yeah. So I think another master stroke, another just wonderful sequencing decision was to follow up Helter Skelter with Long, Long, Long. Yeah. Like one, one of the quietest songs on the record. It's been a long, long, long time. How could I ever have lost you? Uh, it does get up there loud. We have drums on this, but... That terror, that terror that is Helter Skelter is then just like the gentleness of George kind of like, I don't know, comes in like a, I don't know, like a wave maybe, but it's just a beautiful song. It's, I'm, I'm glad that they finally mastered it correctly in 2018. And yes, that's what it took the volume. Cause I, I remember always being able to barely hear those first notes 
of the song, that the little run up into the one, yep. you could barely hear it. Even on the 2009, it's way low. Even on the mono, it's low. Yeah. And yeah, this is the song that most needed a proper remix because you're right. It finally, the 18 makes it much more audible. This is Chris Thomas on piano. Yeah. Which again, that's new ish to me. And it makes me sad. How is he not in our fifth Beatle contest? He's going to have to be in the sixth Beatle contest. He's yeah. Be in the sixth Beatle contest because he's a prominent part on a lot of the piano and certainly the harpsichord on this record. Paul's organ might be the best part of the song. You know, George said George said a couple times he didn't think they took his songs quite so seriously, but Paul's bass and organ, along with Ringo's drums, I think helped make this tune. I think the way Paul's helping to orchestrate this makes the song go. Well, the cool thing is Paul's organ is also the reason why uh, there's that strange moment where he's just holding that one note and the, the scary part of the song. At the end. Yeah. And I want to say George is playing the guitar. He's, he's strumming the guitar with a microphone at the end there. That's why that's it's so scratchy and like... <laughs> Is George wailing too at the end? Yeah, that's the scariest part of the song. Yeah, I mean, buddy, like, you're right. George calms us down after Helter Skelter ends. At first. And <laughs> makes you think you're safe and then takes you into an absolute nightmare. Unless you are on the cassette, in which case Helter Skelter's follow with uh, Long, 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 then Revolution number one. <laughs> right. To end the side. <laughs> right. Right. Here, Long, Long, Long is a side ender for side three. And it kind of gives you, again, that pause at the end of the vinyl where you go, wow, before you flip it over and hear the slow revolution. Okay. Yeah, side four, least favorite side, doesn't matter. Yeah, it starts off with revolution one. Yeah, so Brian dies the previous year, and so now John... Nah, spoilers, not there yet, not there yet, not there yet. <laughs> Sorry. Their manager, their longtime manager. Yeah. And Brian, you know, famously did not want the Beatles to talk about Vietnam or politics in general, and, you know, and we saw what happened when John mentioned Jesus, you know, it turned into, like, <laughs> fire riots, or not riots, but, you know, bullshit. Bullshit with <laughs> involving fire. We urge you to take your Beatle records, pictures, and souvenirs to the pickup points about to be named. And on the night of the Beatles' appearance in Memphis, August 19th, they will be destroyed in a huge public bonfire at a place to be named soon. Nobody told me there'd be days like these. Anyway, John is now finally able to just speak freely about what he thinks about, you know, his worldview. And yeah, we get revolution. John in 1968. I think our society is run by insane people for insane objectives. I want to say that was that interview that they did like the day they all found out Bobby Kennedy had been murdered. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, there's this author, John Weiner, who says that John was engaging in a debate with political militants with regards to revolution. You know, if you talk about destruction, count me out. And Lenin's view is that it ought to be a revolution of personal liberation rather than political liberation. I like that take on it. You know, that makes a lot of sense. I, I feel like John's political songs work best. Yeah. When he's speaking for himself instead of trying to speak for the people. Well, plus John's views were ever changing. John mm -hmm. is, is instructive in that your politics and your worldview can be malleable. I mean, he disassociated himself with the Abby Hoffmans of the world almost as quickly as he got involved with them. Yeah, it's true. I mean, yeah, we saw how he got rid of the Maharishi in whatever, however many months that took from when they first saw him in 67. Elvis, Dylan, I mean, all the everyone he listened to the song God, the people who meant something to him, who he just decided, you know, I have what I got. I. I got what I needed from them, from Paul, from Cynthia, from sadly from Julian to an extent. I got what I need from these people. I can now move on to mm. where else my head's leading me. It's one of the things that's so crippling about John. Oh, I mean, there's a million things that's crippling about John leaving us in 1980. But 
among the most is where would he be now as a political thought leader? Where would he be now as a cultural societal influence? Maybe he'd just be a bored fisherman. Um, <laughs> doing TikToks. Of England, doing TikTok, doing drinking, fish talks. Drinking tea. <laughs> this one's called a fish talk. Look at this fish. Hey, when I was a lad in a fishing town, an old man, he said to me, you can spend your life, your jolly life, just sailing on the sea. I much prefer the single version of this song uh, over the slow acoustic version with the Beach Boy uh, harmony vocal backup things in there. Yeah, I would have taken Not Guilty, or better yet, Across the Universe. Imagine yeah. if you had Across the Universe opening side four. With the birds and the chirping and the, and the noise. Because it was around. It was around. It was around, yeah. You can hear the early take of it. They they recorded it in March, you know, so this is around Lady Madonna and all that. So that would have been cool, man. But again, the White Album's what it is. I just, yeah, this is not my favorite. I don't mind, actually, though, that the whole 10-minute version, that's a real interesting listen for Beatle fans and Beatles sniffers and all that. Yes. It, it gives some context to Revolution Number no. 9, which is helpful, too. Yeah, Totally. God knows it needs it. I used to let Revolution Number One a lot more. Um, I'm sorry, Revolution I. Uh, I, <laughs> I Thank you. Don't make, don't make me do it for nine. Oh, it's uh, IX. Yeah, very good. Oh, give right. that man a ding. <laughs> give My now ding give, a yeah, ling. Now give that man a dong. What does that spell? <laughs> ding dong. Ding, ding. dong. One thing I'll say is I remember always thinking it was cool to meet people who knew this version. Like it was neat to like oh, meet sure. people in college who like knew that there was more than just revolution. And I still, I know you don't love this doo wop version, but the doo wop versions they add in the live video recording, that's my favorite. <laughs> I yeah. love when it's full tempo and it's raw and rough. It's a different vocal because they're doing the vocals live. Yeah, to the backing track. It is a live and, vocal. And John's, it's cool. Like, I think we forget that we have like vaguely live revolution in the Beatles canon because it yeah. was. It was live to tape with the vocals. I still think Paul's scream is hilarious in that. Yeah, it's an <laughs> open it. <laughs> yeah yeah i agree with you i like the backing vocals on that live version on tv played to the fast version i think maybe my qualm is just that they're saying shoo be do which in 1968 is just a little too little rascals or something for me i think they needed to update that shoo be do and use some other consonants and vowels All right, let's move on to your favorite song, that old one of Paul's granny numbers. Okay, Grandpa, dust off your stopwatch and your grandfather clock. Wind it up. Make sure it's working because honey pie is coming up. This is Paul's music. Yeah, this is definitely a point in the album where I do think the song is fine and fun and very well played and very well produced. But like, do you need honey pie is the question. Mm. No, like there are uh, <laughs> honey pie feels like it's in the hold me tight category. We're like, it's certainly fine. But do you need it? You don't need it. But like once it's on, it's not that bad of a song. And it definitely plays into the role of the White Album as this you know, mishmash of a lot of different styles. And John's guitar work on this is really good. 
It's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. Like he's Very stylized. Yeah, he's doing stylized jazz, but he's doing it. You know, it's just like he can do the blues and call. Oh, that's your blues. That's not really the blues. When he's doing like some of the best blues I've heard from the British white guys in '68 or whatever. You know. Um, yeah, famously again recorded at Trident. Paul on piano. That's George on bass. The Fender VI. <laughs> Fender Six. <Yep>. Fender VI. <laughs> George Martin's score is just spot on. I mean, this is in George Martin's wheelhouse as well, this kind of arrangement. Yeah, and he's got interesting things going on, the way the, the woodwinds kind of flutter. He's got yeah. George Martin was so tasteful. Yeah. And yeah, he fits us perfectly. The piano playing's great. Paul does a sassy little glist at about the 145 mark that's just so fun. Like you can tell he's the I like it like that hot kind of music. Right. Like here you can tell he's really into it, the ad libbing and improvising. And on one level it's a bit cloying and a bit obnoxious. On another level mm -hmm. it's fun and sweet file this under Beatles songs i will listen to on the white <laughs> album but do not put on a playlist often yeah yeah exactly yeah this is falls under the same for me as rocky raccoon and piggies and all that in the lyrics book paul says i was definitely thinking of fred astaire and the whole world of the silver screen when i was writing honey pie and then uh, another time he said this is me pretending i'm living in 1925 Paul's in his time machine, you know, doing a little tribute for his dad and that all that. It's sweet. It's sweet. It's a sweet gesture. Silly love songs, you know, all that. What's it's wrong that. with that? What is wrong with that? Exactly. Exactly. A real quirky George Harrison song, Savoy Truffle. This is one of my favorites from this record. Uh, especially at this on this on this album after I've heard, you know, two songs that I'm like, oh, okay. Then Savoy Truffle comes in. I'm like, oh, there's the energy. I like this side. It's another one like Long, Long, Long that got cleaned up so much better in the 2018 remaster. This one always sounded sub or lesser than from a fidelity standpoint, I always thought. Interesting. Yeah, I always liked how the saxophones, I guess, were recorded pretty hot. They kind of distort a little bit or they just get on the edge of distortion. Chris Thomas, again, he wrote the uh, sax arrangement for that. This one was also recorded at Trident on their eight track. Lyrically, it's interesting because uh, here's a quote from George around that time. I now want to write songs that don't have any meaning. <laughs> <laughs> so George invents 90s indie rock right there. We've got a lot of the and, Beatles <laughs> invented and everything. And gone tropo. <laughs> <laughs> he later said, I'm a bit fed up with people coming up and saying, hey, what's it all about? What does it mean? So it was written while hanging out with Eric Clapton over a box of good news, soft-centered chocolates. A lot of people say Eric Clapton's a little soft-centered. Paul's bass playing in this, again, it's so great. His oobla di oobla da callbacks, so many callbacks yes. and so many references on this album. It's such an insider album. But... Uh, Paul just is skipping around, and even though you know it's coming, the doom do doom doom, the oobla dee oobla da quick riff there is so masterful. It feels improvised, even though you know it's not. That is so funny, man. And I love that they're referencing a song that they've just recorded. Yeah, <laughs> it's not even out. They're not, you know, <laughs> they're like that referential. We all know it. George is saying, "Yeah, we all, we do all know Obla Di Obla Da," and them especially because they had to do it for five days. <laughs> <laughs> if that's what he was saying. Maybe that's the commentary. Yeah, it might have been. Uh, then we get a song, yeah, from John, "Cry Baby Cry." This is to me like part of his '67 uh, psychedelic hangover. You know, this this could be a magical mystery tour song, maybe. Cry, baby, cry. Make your mother sigh. She 
She's old enough to know better The king of Marigold was in the kitchen Cooking breakfast for the queen The queen was in the parlor Playing piano for the children of the king John's piano is great in this thing. I love the way it's mixed. When Paul's bass rhythm kicks in in the second verse, like, I, I'm sorry, I know we all know this, but Paul's bass is the greatest part of the Beatles. It's just the greatest part. It propels every single song forward. Um, not a song I've ever really loved. There's a few things I love about it. I love the minor chord at the very end. Yeah, yeah, it's got the funny fake out ending kind of. Yeah, my minor chord are nowhere. Uh, in a misheard lyric for many years, I had convinced myself they were singing, uh, "The Duke is having problems with a message at the local Burger King." <laughs> <laughs> that's a whopper yeah. of a lyric. The Duke was having problems with a message at the local Burger King. Yeah, I, I think it's a great song. I've always liked it, but you're right. It doesn't, it's not in my top 10 or 20 or whatever, but, you know, it's got that twisted nursery rhyme lyric thing going on. So maybe that's why I put it into the Sgt. Pepper Magical Mystery Tour thing. Uh, I mean, John later called it a piece of rubbish, I guess, but I don't know. It's a cool song. I, 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 that's George Martin on the harmonium. John and Paul whistling in the second verse. There's like a weird kind of a whistle sound. So that's adds to that kind of scary element. Like there's these kind of strange sounds that happen that are like, is someone in the house? Like that feeling, you know, <laughs> that unsettling feeling. Uh, it's, it's probably a quiet favorite song for many people. I think that's what it is. It's one of those, it's like maybe a lot of people's you're going to lose that girl, which I know ranks really high on your list. Oh Yeah. But I bet a lot of people, like, for me, that's a quiet favorite. You know, like, oh, I really do. Like, when it's on, you're like, I love that song. But it's not in my top ten, you know? Yeah. I, it's tricky because I don't dislike Cry Baby Cry. I just feel like at this point on side four of this record, I feel like we have... I've not been stunned by a track in a while. We open with Revolution uh, I. <laughs> we go to Honey Pie, Savoy Truffle, Cry Baby Cry. By this point, a Beatles side has a banger. And as good as these songs are, ain't one banger among them. Fish talk, I do stop. Right? I mean, there. What? What? No, there's not a banger. No, there's not a banger no. here. And we're already one, two, three, four songs in, and it ain't about to get a ton better. <laughs> well, can you take me back? Is that a banger? Can you take me back where I came from? Can you take me back? Can You Take Me Back is not unexpected because you know it's coming, but not being listed on the record, kind of being a bit of a lost hidden track. It's really yeah. neat. And it's especially coming off the minor key of Cry Baby Cry. It's a really neat transition. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought it was part of Cry Baby Cry, which it, it kind of is because, it, yeah, it never got its own title or anything like that. Uh, eventually in 2018, they released the the full version so you can hear that, which is cool. Yeah, on the tape box, it was marked Jam Unidentified. But it was, yeah, recorded during the I Will session. It's got that same sound. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, pretty cool. And famously... um or not famously, indie famously, Bobby Kahn, Chicago's own Bobby Kahn, had a song called uh, Who's the Paul? But I think he covered Can You Take Me Back somewhere in there, or he used Can You Take Me Back as a sample. It was kind of a wild thing. This is like in the 90s here in Chicago, but I remember hearing that and uh, thinking it was like pretty wild. Can you take me back where I from? Can you take me well, now it's time to talk about everyone's favorite song on the album, Revolution 9, or as you mm. like to see t say, TJ, Revolution, Revolution IX. IX. Yes, Revolution IX. 
Uh, most people's least favorite Beatles track. I'm sorry. I'm, I read that wrong. Mm. Um, you know, I wouldn't even call this a song, but it's one of the most talked about things on this record. To me, it's integral to the DNA of the White Album. I don't think the White Album will be the White Album without Revolution 9. It would be. This would be the Whiter Album, to quote Ringo. <laughs> yes, this would be on the Whiter This one's album. on Whiter. <laughs> George Martin in 1990. I love Revolution 9. You could sit in front of those two speakers and actually see things happening if you shut your eyes. It wasn't music, but it was a sound picture. Number nine, 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 number Beware that a bag, who calls this their favorite Beatles song? <laughs> don't socialize with that. Yeah, if one, of, if the, one of our listeners, I'm sorry, I'll take the hit. Bye bye. <laughs> yeah, if this is your favorite song. You're you're trying too hard. I think yeah. number nine is said 43 times by the unknown man, the unknown engineer on one of those records, like a sample. Or demo, a sampler, right? Yeah, yeah, something on like library music, you know. And uh, it's it's lost to record who was the engineer saying everything that day. Obviously, yeah, you play it backwards. It sounds like turn me on, dead man. We've talked about this song before in our sampling episode. So uh, we've gone into depth about where each sample came from and all that stuff. You were so. great with that. Thanks, I, man. I learned a lot from that. <laughs> now, have I remembered it? No, <laughs> but I learned a lot. Like any good student, I quickly forgot about it after the test. Yeah, man. A few of the sound effects used are labeled Vickers Poems, Queen's Mess, and Organ Last Will Test. There's some fun stuff in there, though, like John's vocals, industrial output, financial imbalance, the Watusi. The, the twist. twist. <laughs> is John playing Password throughout the song? <laughs> is that what's going on? Yeah. I think you can hear Burt Convy. That's Burt Convy. He goes, Eldorado. Eldorado. <laughs> no, that's George. But it could have been Burt Convy. I'm sure he was there somewhere. I bet Paul taped him on his, one of his Brunel tape recorders. Yeah, Paul famously had nothing to do with this song. Yeah. Or whatever you want to call it, Music Concrete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, he's not involved with this, but that's him playing piano on the long take of Revolution 1 that eventually comes in. They used a lot of Revolution Number 1 spill-off from the 10-minute version as vocals, like with Lennon going like, right, 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 which is scary. It is scary. And all that you become naked and all that, that's from Revolution 1. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get the song's importance. I, like I said on the many other episodes, I'm not going to lie and pretend like I like this song. I've, I've disliked this actively. And it's not for having a closed mind. It's just not pleasant <laughs> to me. It's not. No, it's not pleasant. No. It's not enjoyable to it's me. It's a revolution. It's supposed to be the sound of maybe a revolution. And, you know, you're taking snap audio snapshots of places all around the world. Maybe. Maybe that's the loose idea. Where Tracy Chapman was superior to John Lennon, I think we can all agree, commercially and, you know, saw as a songwriter. Tracy Chapman was just talking about a revolution. Talking about a revolution. <laughs> and it sounds like a whisper. I do love Tracy Chapman. I'm going to yeah. get back on her because that was a great debut album. Yeah. So, yeah, The Nightmare Ends. I remember you you equating this with, like, a bad acid trip that's you're finally fading out of. 
yeah, just coming down from a trip of some sort with the the strings and the high pitched woman's voice kind of letting you know the clouds, or maybe you've died. It sounds like maybe after the revolution, you're going to the gates of heaven. Oh, wow. I don't want to be welcomed by Ringo singing. <laughs> Got to pay your dues. Yeah, if you, you want, want to be <laughs> welcomed by Jimmy Nickel. <laughs> He played. He played all my loving way better than Ringo. No, I don't mean it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. More proof that John had a sweet side. It's the song "Good Night," sung by Ringo. Perfectly weird. I yeah. think that Ringo ends this record with this song after that insanity. That real again, like musical terror. That was Revolution Nine. It just ends, it, to me, it ends so sideways in a, in a wonderful way. Dream, sweet dreams for you. Good night. Good night, everybody. Everybody, everywhere. Good night. It's fun. I've got nothing else to say about Good Night. I've never, like, I, George Martin's orchestration is astonishing, and Ringo's voice is sweet, and John wrote a beautiful song. Uh, it's, I mean, it's lovely, and it's not one I really want to hear. And, <laughs> you know, it does beg the question if you're going to rank sides of Beatles records. Yeah. This is my second to least favorite side of a Beatles record. Oh, all sides. I, I, I'd i have to do some research on that. Okay. I mean, of the core, I'm not talking about like the United Artists Hard Day's Night, but like... Right, right. Yeah, other than side two of Yellow, Yellow Submarine. Submarine. <laughs> I don't know that there's... I'm including Past Masters. I'd much rather... Past Masters any, is good. Why do you talk on Past Masters? I'm not. I'm not including Past Masters. It's all like, singles. I, I'd much rather hear Past Masters than this. I'm not talking about it. Oh, okay. I thought you were ranking it low, like with side no, two of Yellow no, Submarine. No, no, okay. no. It'd be super high. This I'm ranking it's got like, hey, just, Jude. <laughs> well, it'd be side two of Past Masters 1. <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's just one that I don't want to hear all the time. There's not, there's not one. It's the only Beatles side from a core album that doesn't have one Beatle banger. Not one. I guess so. I guess so. I'm giving that a quick sniff test, and I think that passes the quick Beatle sniff test. Sniff my Beatle. <laughs> <laughs> sniff my Beatle. Um. Sniff my Beatle. Sniff. <laughs> Please don't be dead. Sniff. Well, yeah, there you go. That it closes it out. Thank you, Ringo, for whispering us out on that. Um, yeah, what a wild ride. What a weird, what a weird fucking record from like the world's biggest group. Such a wild record. I don't know. I think that's why I love it so much. It's just so weird and wild. I think what else was '68? Lady Madonna. You mean from the Beatles? Yeah, Lady yeah. Madonna, Inner Light. Yeah. Hey Jude and Revolution, right. Only four other songs, right? Yeah. 68 was a great year for the Beatles. I mean, yeah. business, whatever. Yeah. I mean, Apple was actually going strong at the start. So yeah, actually 68 was a good year for the Beatles musically, I think. It was astonishing. And just because they didn't have the pressure of touring anymore, they were two years past, it doesn't mean they didn't have other lives and other things and relationships and children and yeah. to still crank out this level of material and to think that they faced so much adversity, a lot of which was self-imposed. I'm not having a pity party for the Beatles, but <laughs> through adversity, they kept sharpening their genius. And that's you won't find a ton of White Album songs on my top Beatles songs list. But as an album, yeah, it's obviously one of the greatest things they ever put to vinyl and soaking myself in it for the first time. Because it did. It reminded me of high school. It reminded me of camp. It reminded me of college. Those are the three times I really, really, really That's wild. listened to and love this album. That's cool, man. Even just like going through it through all the books and deep dishing it as we do. It just kind of confirmed its status for me in my realm of favorite music. It's my favorite Beatles album, and it's probably, you know, a contender, definite contender for favorite album ever. You know, I think like the Who Sell Out is one of my favorite records. 
Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain by Pavement, Misfits, Static Age, blah, blah, blah. Duran Duran, Seven and the Ragged <laughs> Tiger. Are you an arena guy? <laughs> what are your favorite? I know you like you like um, Marshall, that Marshall Crenshaw record ranks highly overall, right? I like Marshall Crenshaw doing the Marshall Tucker band <laughs> are right up there with Can't You Someday Some With See. <laughs> I was going to say, I wasn't sure I could see that. <laughs> no, my, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, my favorite albums of all time. I mean, they're almost all Beatles, but the non Stevie Wonder, Intervisions, Ben yeah. Folds, Reinhold Messner, Steely Dan, Katie Lied, uh, Wilco, Sky Blue Sky. There's a few that I hold very close to me, too. But yeah, I mean, I also I'm I'm such a meatball. I put every <laughs> Beatles album ahead of any other artist I like. <laughs> <laughs> I get on my that. list. I get them all right up there. I get that. I do get that. Yeah. Yeah. And on certain days, that's what it is, man. You know, I think a lot of us fall into a big beetle rabbit holes. And every time you do it, it's such a fun ride to just go through it all over again. And I don't know how these songs, for whatever reason, they they stay with us. I think because whether it's a conscious choice or it's just baked into the music, Tony, I think we as Beatle fans exist in awe of the music, the frequency of the great music and the story behind the great music. They check off every box of how to stay relevant and not boring. Because when you think that this came out five years after with the Beatles, what band <laughs> and in between minor things like hard days night yeah. And help and Sergeant rubber soul and revolver and pepper. <laughs> I mean, revolver, that's what's so yeah. the audacity <laughs> of the story is what keeps them so fresh to me. Well, man, I had a good 17 hours talking the White Album with you on this crisp winter day here in Chicago, Illinois. This is our Please Please Me. We recorded for 12 hours straight. <laughs> Knocked it out. <laughs> Yeah, I only had somebody replace me on one song <laughs> for right, facts but, but don't worry, you'll be on the single <laughs> because you come from the dingle. <laughs> Thank you uh, for liking, subscribing. Thanks to all our uh, Patreon subscribers, our Star Club, our Cavern Club, and our Casba Club. Feel free to uh, go on untitledbeatlespodcast.com if you're feeling generous. Hey, why not? We're here. Uh, thank you, TJ. What a wonderful day. Thanks to our producer, Casey Baker. What can I say except you're welcome? I was going to thank you for suggesting that we do your your favorite album. And I, I it was such a joy for me to jump back into this record. And I uh, suggest everybody listens to this as four separate sides consecutively because the, the way the sides end makes this album unlike any other Beatles album. Well, uh, for Untitled Beatles Podcast and Kenny Rogers Roasters, oh, uh, order number nine is up. Order number nine for a two-piece family honey-roasted chicken dinner. I care about nutrition. I care about tranquility. We care about all important things in life. Less fat, less salt, less calories. At Kenny Rogers Roasters, we want you to be healthy. Untitled Beatles Podcast. Like and subscribe. Teacher says, get to the bottom, then go back to the top of the slide. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I got your back. <laughs>